morning. Today's passage comes from the book of Acts, chapters 1, verses 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, good morning. Today is a special Sunday. We're stepping out of our series in Ephesians, and we are looking at local outreach. We're calling this Local Outreach Sunday to encourage us to think about our involvement in the community and how God might want to use us to transform the Treasure Valley, Boise, Meridian area for the kingdom of God. But I think a question to start with before we start thinking about too practically what we're doing is to step back and think about what theologically it would encourage us to be involved locally. And the question that I want to ask, I want you to consider this morning, first of all, is, why am I here? (laughs) Why are we here? Why, when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, why didn't he just take us to heaven at that point? It's a philosophical question, really, a spiritual question, a personal question, one that every one of us, I think, has already, in a sense, answered by the way we live, but... This is an opportunity to maybe reconsider and think through what we really believe about why we are here. I want to focus this morning in particular on just three verses, Acts 1, 6 through 8. The book of Acts is part two of Luke's writings, the book of Luke, and then the book of Acts. And Jesus is risen from the dead. He's taught the disciples, walked with them for 40 days as a risen Lord. He's taught them, prepared them for his departure, which happens a little later in the chapter when he ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father and leaves the disciples behind. So he's preparing them, he's teaching them, and in this passage he gives them their marching orders. This is what I want you to be focused on after I leave. During the time, this time between my first coming and my second coming. This is your job until I come back to establish my kingdom forever in the new heavens and the new earth. These were the marching orders for the disciples and they are also our marching orders as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. Each of us is called to live for his kingdom during whatever time we have on earth. So as we look at these three verses, just three verses, we will see three parts to what he's called us to, three parts of our calling. What should we see as our purpose on earth? 
And I believe if we, as believers in Jesus Christ, can really grasp what he teaches us in these verses, it would transform not only our lives, but it would transform our entire community. So let's pray and then dig in together. Lord, thank you for the calling you've given us to make a difference where we are during this time on earth. I pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our heart this morning, that we would see truth in a deeper way, that we might begin to live more fully as your people, your witnesses in this fallen world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are these three parts of our calling? Well, first we see in verses 6 and 7 that our first part of our calling is to submit to the Father's authority. Submit to the Father's authority. Look at the question the disciples ask in verse 6. Now remember, Jesus has taught them a lot of things. He has taught them, look, I'm going away. It's good I'm going away because I'm leaving the Holy Spirit to you. But during this time, you're going to have, there will be suffering, there will be difficulty, there will be struggle, but you've got a purpose for me. I want you to be my witnesses. I mean, he's taught them all that. He's taught them. He's encouraged them. He's told them that the kingdom is spiritual for now, not physical on earth until he returns. He's told them clearly that he's leaving. And it's for their benefit because they will receive the Holy Spirit. And yet notice what they ask. Uh, So Lord, is it at this time? Is it at this time? (laughs) This time? that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, there's several things wrong with this question (laughs) in light of what Jesus has been teaching them all along. You see, first of all, what's wrong with it, I think, is that they don't get it. Essentially, what they're asking when they ask this question is, oh, okay, Lord, whatever, you know, you've been teaching, but... Now is this time the time you're going to make everything okay? Are you going to fix my life now? I mean, now that you've risen from the dead and also, are you going to be king now? You're going to set up your kingdom on earth. You're going to get rid of sin and evil and fix everything and make everything wonderful now? Is it this time that you're going to do that? You see, Jesus has already said that that's coming later. (laughs) But essentially what they're asking is, do I really have to suffer? Does, do I have to go through this time of struggle and of growth and living in a fallen world? There's another problem with this question they ask. Is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, Jesus has made it clear that the gospel is going to be for all the nations, not just Israel, including Israel, yes, but to everyone. But they've missed it. Jesus has been preparing them for this future kingdom when he will return. But in the meantime, this time is to be a time of walking with him, learning to be witnesses in the midst of this fallen world. But they don't get it. (laughs) One of the privileges I have, great privileges I have as a pastor, is I get to do weddings. And that means premarital counseling. We always do extensive premarital counseling here because here at Cole we're committed to not doing weddings, but we do marriages. And so we do premarital counseling. But 
almost inevitably, the couple comes in and they are shocked by how difficult engagement is. They kind of think, we've made this commitment, and yeah, we've got to plan a wedding and whatever, but, but hey, we've made a commitment, and so life's going to be great now. And instead, they're going through a period of engagement, which is very stressful, because they've committed to one another, but they're still living apart. They have to deal with all that, plus they have the stresses of planning a wedding, and it's a difficult time, and they're surprised at how difficult it is. And I tell them, hey, don't be surprised. That's normal. It's a great opportunity to see how your fiancé handles stress (laughs) and to learn to work work it through together. But the wedding's coming. The wedding's coming. I think a lot of us as believers are a lot like those engaged couples. We kind of think, I've committed my life to Christ. I'm a believer now. God's in my life, and so life should go well. Everything should go smoothly. It should be wonderful. There shouldn't be any stress, difficulty. God's in my life, so He's just going to make my marriage my kids, my work, everything just flow perfectly and smoothly. And even though theologically, as we read the scriptures, we know that's not true, there's something about us that just so longs for heaven now that we're just like the disciples. Is it at this time, Lord, you're going to fix everything? (laughs) Is the kingdom now? Do I get to experience the fullness of everything wonderful now? since I've got you in my life, we really think on some heart level that this time should primarily be a time of just enjoying God's blessings until he takes us to heaven. Then life hits us and life is hard and there's suffering and there's struggle and there's cancer and there's flat tires and there's death and there's job losses and car repairs and on and on and we find ourselves at times getting angry with God. Because we think, God, this isn't what I signed up for. And he says, oh yeah. (laughs) Yes, it is. But we're just like the disciples. We expect the fullness of the kingdom now. And so some of us in this room are really struggling with anger towards God. God, how come my life hasn't worked the way I thought it would? So how does Jesus handle this attitude he sees in the disciples as they say, is this the time you're going to fix everything? Well, interesting, verse 7, he just says this to them. It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Essentially what Jesus is saying is this. I know you long for heaven and it's coming. But for this time, You need to lay your life in the Father's hands. Trust in His authority for you. Leave your life in His hands. Submit to His authority. And learn to let go of your own demand that life go well. You see, if we're going to be useful here on this earth, if we're going to be witnesses for the Lord, that's a beginning point. We need to let go of our demand that life go well and learn to submit to the Father's will. That's our first task, really, if we are to live well during this time, to submit to the Father's authority. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, hey, you guys need to submit to the great, awesome, sovereign, Lord of the universe, King of all creation. Submit to Him, to His authority. Notice what He says, no, guys, 
Submit to the Father's authority. The Father. The one who sent me to die for you. The one who committed himself to care for you and love you and be there for you. He is your loving, heavenly Father. That's who I'm asking you to trust with your life. And realize if he brings hard things in your life, it's for a greater purpose. And so you can trust him, even if life doesn't go the way you want it to, and if it often doesn't make sense. Charles Spurgeon says this, just a good picture for us of what he's calling us to. It is for you to know that your father is at the helm of the ship, and therefore it cannot be wrecked. It may rock and reel to and fro, but since he rules the waves... The vessel will not have one more tossing than his infinite love permits. We really can trust him. Our life is in his hands, and so we can submit to the Father's authority. Even Jesus had to do this. Have you noticed? And it wasn't easy for Jesus, like it's not for us. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying, he didn't want to go to the cross in his humanness, but he said, not my will, but yours be done. So essentially, Jesus is saying to his disciples, just follow follow my example, do what I do, submit yourself to the Father's authority and say, not my will, but yours be done. But, But I want life to go well. But okay, Father. I'm entrusting myself to your hands. I'm submitting myself to your authority. Secondly, what we need to do, as I see in this passage, is rely on the Spirit's power. Rely on the Spirit's power. Now, if you're like me, you're kind of like, well, Lord, if you're asking me to hang in there in this world that is such a mess, that's so hard and there's suffering and death and difficulty and struggle and failure and I struggle with sin and temptation and there's all this to deal with, I'm going to need more resources than I've got. And Jesus says, ah, I've got just the thing for you. (laughs) He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Exactly. It's like getting a new job and suddenly you realize... You walk in and you realize this job description is way too big for me. I cannot do it. I'm going to need a whole lot more resources than I've got personally to do this. And that's exactly what Jesus has provided in the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of us as believers, I know, we hear the word power. Jesus says, power will come upon you. When you receive the Holy Spirit, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit, right? We know that. But most of us don't feel very powerful, do we? In fact, most of us feel pretty inadequate, pretty powerless for all that God calls us to do. And you know what I say to that? Excellent! (laughs) That's exactly where God wants us. Feeling inadequate sensing that we don't have what it takes so that we will learn to rely on the Spirit's power, not our own. You see, this is one of the great spiritual mysteries. The world tells us 
man, if you want to do something, you've got to get all the resources. You have to have power, strength. You need to feel adequate. You need to be able to do it yourself, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and it's got to come from you and you just get out there and do it. And Jesus says, I've given you a huge task and I want you to be completely inadequate, realize you can't do it, you don't have what it takes, so that you will turn to me and rely on my power to do it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks a lot about this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He makes statements like, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's weird. Or, my power, his power is made perfect in my weakness. You see, that's the amazing thing of the new covenant, what the Bible calls the new covenant. It's his power in me. I am inadequate. I'm weak, but his power is in me. And as I learn to let go of trying to do it myself and depend on his life in me, I have the strength to do what I need to do. When I let go of my ability, his power kicks in. I like the way that uh, Johnny Erickson Tata puts it when she explains this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that says this. Verse 7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul's saying there, Hey, we have this treasure. We are clay pots. But what Johnny Erickson Tata says is, you know, we don't use a lot of clay pots around here for everyday vessels. So maybe a more modern example would be cardboard boxes. <laughs> Essentially saying, hey, we're just a bunch of cardboard boxes. But we have an incredible treasure in us. And it's okay to be a cardboard box. That's how God made us. For a purpose, so that the treasure would be in us, that the power would be from him, not from us. I'm looking at a whole lot of cardboard boxes out there. Some are kind of tattered. <laughs> Some are maybe a little more new and shiny or whatever, but we're all boxes. But we have an incredible power in us, the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we think about power then, what, is, what does he empower us to do? I think often we get confused. What does that mean? How, what does it mean to have the power of the Spirit in me? What will He empower me to do? Well, if you go through the book of Acts and see how the Spirit empowered the disciples, sometimes they did miracles. But I think the real power you see is in how they became bold for Jesus Christ. They stepped out to face persecution and difficulty. They stepped out to be witnesses for Him to share their faith, to tell people about what Jesus had done in their lives. And they went wherever he led. They spread the gospel boldly. And their lives were changed by that power of the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon, again, in talking about this, says, describes four different kinds of power. And I think it's a helpful distinction. Just think about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One, he talks about miraculous power that sometimes that power in us, the Holy Spirit in us, will lead us to do miracles, healings, other things like that, that God might work in miraculous ways through us. For some of us, that happens. I don't think that's the norm for most of us, but it does. that is part of the empowering sometimes. But there's three others that I think apply to all of us. 
Secondly, the Spurgeon says, the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in mental power, is what he calls it. Essentially, this is the power to understand truth, to have our eyes open to reality, to be able to understand God's love, to be able to see how God is working, to be able to have our thinking changed and understand the Scriptures. You see, that is all a work of the Holy Spirit in us, the power of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to truth and to reality. A third kind of power he describes is what he calls moral power. The Holy Spirit in us gives us moral power. This is the power to change, to be able to say no to sin and temptation and addiction and evil. And again, it doesn't mean it's instantaneous. It's a growth process often, but the power, this moral power, is the power that helps us change in a way so that we're able to begin to love others more fully rather than just to live for ourselves, to do good, to let go of anger and resentments, to forgive, to live graciously and kindly. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and we can't do it on our own. And then the fourth kind of power he describes is spiritual power. This is the power to trust God, to trust Him, to believe in Him even when we can't see Him, and a power to influence others spiritually as we love others, to have God use us to change their lives. You see, that's power. That's power. Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 12 as He's training His disciples. Verse 11 and 12, He says, When the... When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you're to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, maybe you've been like me. You think, okay, I need to share Christ with somebody. And so you plan out the whole conversation in your head. And you try to figure out exactly what might get through to them. And you pray about it and you get all worked up and you've got it all figured out what you're going to say. And Jesus says, no, that's depending on yourself. Just go love people, be involved in their lives, and trust the Holy Spirit to give you the words at that time. It doesn't mean you don't think about it some, but, but it's trusting the Spirit to give you those words at that time. You see how freeing that is? That He wants to just speak his life through us and live through us by his power. So we're called to submit to the Father's authority. We're called to rely on the Spirit's power. And then thirdly, we're called to follow Jesus' leading. And Jesus leads us by encouraging us to be a certain kind of person in the place he has placed us. Be a certain kind of person in the place He has placed us. He says this, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Notice Jesus does not say, and by the way, you guys are going to do witnessing. It's not a task he gives us. So we kind of go, okay, I'm doing witnessing now, and then now I'm not. (laughs) I'll go do witnessing for a few minutes and then the rest of the time I'm not witnessing. No, he says, be witnesses. Our task during this time on earth is to be witnesses, to be a kind of person that when people look at our lives, they know God's real. 
as we depend on him, as we submit to him, as we rely on his power. You see, a witness is something that we are no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. We are to be a testimony wherever we are to God and his grace. You probably have heard the story of Henry Stanley and Dr. Livingston. Dr. Livingston was a missionary in Africa and he disappeared for a long period of time. So Henry Stanley was a journalist and they sent Henry Stanley to go find him in Africa. For months he searched, he looked everywhere. And you may have heard the famous line where he finally finds him and he says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Famous, famous line. What you may not have heard is what Henry Stanley wrote after that encounter. He said, If I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to be a Christian. And he never spoke about it at all. I would have been compelled to be a Christian and he never talked about it at all. You see, Dr. Livingston was a witness by how he lived. Oh, that others could say that about you and me. Wow. You know what? I just got to spend some time with Bob or Kathy or Karen or Sue or Tom, Bill. And you know, just being around them made me want to know more about God, about Jesus. There's something different about their lives. See, that's being a witness. But normally, a witness isn't silent. A witness does speak. And God has called us as witnesses to speak. In fact, the word, the root of the word really is like being a witness in a jury trial. But if you think about it, there's two kinds of witnesses in a jury trial. There is a normal witness who just says, this is what I've experienced. And there are expert witnesses who maybe haven't experienced whatever the crime was, but they know a certain subject very well, and so they're called in to talk about what they know. I think we as Christians are to be both. As witnesses, we are to tell people, like expert witnesses, what we know about Jesus. And we don't necessarily have to know a lot. If we just are in the Word and let God work in our lives and teach us who Jesus is, we just talk about, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is what He said. This is what He did. So we are expert witnesses, not knowing at all, but just sharing what we know about Jesus. But we're also normal witnesses, witnesses who talk about, and this is what Jesus has done in my life. This is what I have experienced as I've walked with him. It's not that complicated or hard, folks. We don't have to have it together. I remember as a pretty new believer, I sat down with my sister and I said, nervous, scared, (laughs) do you want to know more about Jesus? She's like, sure. So I kind of told her what I knew, which wasn't very much. And I said, so do you want to accept Jesus? She said, sure. (laughs) It's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. You see, I didn't know everything and I didn't have it together, but God had prepared the way and he just said, just be a witness. Just share what you know and let me work in your life. Let me use you to spread the kingdom of God. 
Just talk about me, Jesus says. So we are to be people who are witnesses. And he's put us in a place. It says here, Jerusalem, that's like Boise, right? <laughs> and the people that you know well, that you're comfortable with, that you hang out with, he says, be a witness there. Live for me there. Depend on me there. Rely on the Spirit's power there. But also in Judea and Samaria, this was the surrounding territory. But it's interesting that Jesus says Judea, which is you know, where the Jews hung out, and Samaria. Samaria was right next door. But the Jews hated the Samaritans. You see, what had happened is hundreds of years before the Assyrians in 722 B.C. came, took the Jews out of that area of Samaria and took most of them away and then brought in a bunch of foreigners. That's kind of what they did when they conquered a people. And so the, the people that were living in Samaria were considered half-breeds. There were some Jewish blood, but there was all this other stuff mixed in. And the Jews said, man, those are awful people. Those are Samaritans. And they avoided them at all costs. So I think, okay, what about us? What are the Samaritans in our midst? Well, God's brought a whole lot of people here, hasn't he, that are immigrants, that are refugees, that look at life differently. See, the reason they didn't like the Samaritans is because they had a different religion, they built their own temple, they had different racial background, etc., and they just avoided them. But Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses in Samaria to those people around you that are nearby but are very different from you. Reach out to them. And the book of Acts talks about that in Acts chapter 8 of how God sent the disciples to Samaria and did a miracle and the Samaritans were coming to Christ. God wants us to reach out to our Judea and Samaria. God has brought people around us to love, whether they're Iraqis, Somalis, Uzbeks, Afghans, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, homeless, hurting, broken. These are the Samaritans of Boise, of the Treasure Valley. As Jesus said, be my witnesses there. Love them. And he says to the ends of the earth, God may call you to go to the ends of the earth. We have missionaries, we have field staff, people whom God has led and we support you. If God calls you to that, we want to help you to go. And there's people here that I'm sure God's tugging at your heart saying, I want you to go to the ends of the earth for the kingdom of God. And we want to support you to go. Well, many of you are already involved in local ministries and this is local outreach Sunday. So we'll, We've asked a few folks, a couple of folks, to come up and share with you how God has led them to get involved in a local ministry. And I want to invite up first Gail Kirkland, who's involved in Chrysalis House, so she can tell you about how God has used her in that ministry. Gail? A little over a year ago, I had been praying that God would use me in a new way, that he would give me a purpose and a passion. Then I heard Marcia Tennyson speak about Chrysalis, a transitional program of housing for women. 
She explained how a chrysalis is the little cocoon that the caterpillar spins around itself, its little body. It provides shelter and protection while it goes through its amazing transformation into a beautiful butterfly. She told us how the chrysalis program is just such a place of shelter and protection for women being released from jail and prison and drug court, and they're seeking a life change, a positive life change. God truly changes lives in the chrysalis program. The women often, for the first time, are introduced to Jesus. He's the only one who can truly heal their hurts and their hearts and help them overcome their self-centered and addictive lifestyles. They learn that they are loved by an awesome God who cares about every part of their lives in spite of their past bad decisions. In Christ, they become new creations like the butterfly, and they no longer are bound by the chains of the past beliefs and addictions. With God's help, they take the necessary steps away from their former destructive lifestyles and toward independence. When I heard Marsha's story, God placed an immediate burden on my heart to help, but at the same time, I was very afraid. I didn't know how I could be used, and I was uncertain about these scary women and how their life experiences were so different from my own. But I was compelled to learn more about chrysalis, and when I did, I met some beautiful women, and in spite of their best choices in the past, they were determined to break their self-destructive habits and lifestyles and over this past year God has continued to build an irresistible softness for these women in my heart until my fear and my doubt have truly been overcome as a transition coach I meet weekly with two women as they work through the four stages of the chrysalis 18-month program I encourage I challenge I hold them accountable in their efforts to turn away from their broken past and build a new life. I walk beside them as they understand their past life experiences have contributed to their destructive choices. I've watched their very countenance change as they learned that they are loved and forgiven through God's amazing grace. I've watched God do amazing things in the life of my two girls. They're both recovered drug addicts who have served time in prison. While at Chrysalis, they have attended classes like Boundaries, Changes That Heal, and The Best Question Ever. They've read books such as Battlefield of the Mind and Love is a Choice. And they've allowed God to completely change their thinking processes and understand how to make good choices and to trust the people who care about them. It's truly been an amazing thing to be part of their transformation. Vance and I just attended on Friday night, a graduation um, of both of my girls from a year-long Christian 12-step recovery program. Step-by-step, step, shedding a lot of tears, they have let go of the abuse and rejection of their past. God has healed them of the scars from transgressions done to them and transgressions they have inflicted on others. And they've been reconciled to family and to friends. Along the journey with my two girls over the past year, I've been a sister, a mother, a coach, a cheerleader, and a prayer warrior, but mostly I've been a friend with a listening ear and a ready shoulder and an encouraging hug. One of my women, 
who just had her 40th birthday, has a sure hope in God that the next 40 years is going to be her best. She's now serving as a house assistant and has unlimited time with her three children, and she will be training to be in leadership in other 12-step programs in the future. My other young woman, who is 25, has rebuilt a relationship with her bro- a broken relationship with her four-year-old daughter. She's made great advances in her job responsibilities and has completed three terms of college credit at the University of Phoenix. These two young women are truly changed from the inside out, and they both give all the credit to God. And as I said before, God changes lives in the Chrysalis program. By responding to God's call on my heart, I was able to step into a world outside of my own and allow him to work through me. I have witnessed God's hand in the miracles that have transformed these crippled caterpillars into beautiful butterflies. God has used me in a new way. He has given me a purpose and a deep passion. And I, too, have been forever changed. Thank you, Gail. And Bob and Belva Lawton, would you come on up and share about your ministry with International Student Ministries? Good morning. Uh, I'm Bob. This is Belva. And we've been working with International Students, Inc. now for about six years. And uh, we're the local leadership team. And this morning, rather than just talk about the ministry, we thought we'd introduce you to some of our students and uh, tell you a little bit about them, how we minister to them, and hopefully you can get a sense of how you also could uh, become involved in ministering to students. This is Chiem, and Chiem is a former BSU student from South Korea. She credits the kindness of an ISI volunteer with being instrumental in helping her to understand the love of Christ. An ISI volunteer picked Chiem up at the airport uh, when she arrived after a, a long, tiring journey and uh, took her to a restaurant when uh, they discovered that the university dining option was closed that day. So um, the friendship grew as they started meeting regularly to work on uh, helping Chiem improve her English language skills. Uh, We met Chiem after she went through the intensive English program, went back to Korea, came back again, um, and now Chiem is currently living back in Korea with her husband and daughter. 